We're going to close out chapter 9, and it seems like there was a theme, even though uh, not much was spoken today uh, during praise and prayer. There seems to be a theme that, again, like God, God doesn't you know, usually make mistakes when he sets up the text and does all this stuff. He kind of tends to lead his people in the same direction and put the same burdens on our heart and hopes on our heart. And I think this text will really speak to and satisfy some of our desires that we heard this morning. We're going to close it out at verse 35 to the end, chapter 9 of the book, Gospel of Matthew, where it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, for years, I thought that the primary mission and goal of the Christian on earth was to go to church and sing songs to Jesus uh, and sit through long, boring sermons like this one um, and then try to be a better person every day. That's what I thought it was. Um, but after reading my Bible for 30 years, particularly the Gospels, particularly the things that Jesus talks about and says and emphasizes, I've come to the conclusion that none of those things are the primary mission or goal of the Christian on earth. Having said that, um, today we're going we're gonna to hear reinforced once more from Jesus what is, why you exist, and what the purpose is of what we're doing here, of what we're doing here. So we're just going to jump right into it. Verse 35, uh, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. So Jesus at this point, uh, he's... Um, I hate to use the term because it's been stolen, but he, he's out of the closet now. Like there, there, was, there was a lot of times when um, Jesus would, uh, would have a, a private briefing with people or a private um, limited audience, um, and he would do something crazy. Like he would do something completely mind-blowing and miraculous, and then he would say to the observers before he left, like, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody right? Um, Jesus isn't doing that anymore. <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's open. He's no longer on, on, the, on the down low. He's no longer like Israel's best kept secret at this point. Uh, he's gone public. He's openly showing, declaring, proving his kingship, as well as revealing to us the primary mission and goal of the kingdom that he's bringing Okay, so he's, he's openly testifying of the kingdom with complete authority. I think we told you guys before, we've kind of uh, reminded you periodically, the book of Matthew, you cannot get away from the primary theme. There is one subject that is head and shoulders above every other subject that Jesus teaches on. It's the kingdom. Everything is about the kingdom. Everything's about the kingdom. And he's openly testifying of that kingdom with complete authority. And the first thing that we see is he's not just doing this, in big places. I love this. He's not just going to the big popular uh, uh, cool places. He's doing this everywhere. Like, he, like if he came today, he, he wouldn't just go to Portland. 
right? To, to, or, or just go to Bend, or just go to Redmond. He would also go to Christmas Valley, and he would also go to Paisley. He would also go to these little places that, I mean, Paisley, I think, is known for their mosquito festival. Like, nobody goes there. There's nothing going on in Paisley. I've cleaned chimneys out there, and it's, it's depressing. Jesus would go there. Jesus would take the good news of the kingdom everywhere. And, and I think this is a really good thing for, for us to, to grasp onto, especially I work with a lot of church planters, um, and, and every year I get to meet pastors uh, from Central Oregon uh, that come in. Every year there's someone who comes into Central Oregon and plants a church, and it goes into Bend. Like, like people aren't going to the outlying area, like they're going to the cool, sexy place where there's actually some money and some people where they can build a big church. Uh, Jesus didn't do that, and I love that. Jesus regarded everybody. He regarded every place on the map. He went everywhere. So he's, he's going everywhere, big, small, and in between. Um, the, the, the text says that he was going to all the cities and villages, which is the first point of application for you and I in this text this morning. He went to all the cities and villages. Um, As we get more and more divided as a people, more politically categorized, more politically sectioned off, and in that more hateful and opposed to the other side, more confident and defined and dug into our own social political columns, we will begin to avoid certain people and prefer others. That's just the way it works, unfortunately. And I see this more in the church. Satan, in my opinion, is using this bull more in the church today to take Christians off of their game than anything else is the whole political thing, which has repercussions that are way greater, way deeper than any of us are considering as far as what Jesus has put us here to do. Um, and, and so, like, because this is true, we begin to avoid certain places and prefer others, right? Uh, we talked to a guy recently, the pastors met with a dude a couple of weeks ago who had lived in Bend for years and then recently, like, moved uh, outside of Bend to, like, this outskirts. I won't say where it is, um, but it's, it's, it's a smaller, quieter place. And he was bragging about how he couldn't remember the last time he went to Bend, Um, And that he doesn't care if he ever goes there again uh, because he hates it. And what he was talking about was the social political climate of Bend. That's what he was referring to. Now, the problem is that this man's a Christian. And that thinking is not. This is the entire issue. Like, I can't imagine Jesus ever saying, like, I'm not going to Capernaum because there's a bunch of libtards over there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I just don't think... That would ever be something that comes out of his mouth. Or like, I'm not going to Caesarea because like, they want to take away our guns, right? Or or, or I'm not stepping foot into Emmaus because they voted pro-choice. I don't think Jesus would think or say like any of those things, but the church does. The church does. The people that call themselves followers are saying things like this. For us to think that these people are flawed in their worldview so they're off the rescue list, is the exact opposite of why Jesus came and who he came to. That everyone's worldview is flawed is why he went to every city and every town. That's why he went there, not avoided it. Again, the the trend of the Christian for a few years now has been just move to a different state. 
If this one isn't politically correct for you, then I'm just gonna go somewhere where it is. And some of these moves that people are making are like all the way across the, the, the country. You know, or ha- like they're big moves, they're, they're not small ones. And the whole purpose is to get away from the people who aren't like them and be amongst the people who are. We as Christians have become extremely selective and preferential about who we go to and where we go. And all I have to say is, praise God, Jesus did not do that. Praise God that Jesus did not do that. That he went everywhere. When he found me, I was in a jail cell. Like insignificant on the map. Insignificant, not worth redeeming, not worth visiting. And he saw me. He saw me in that place, in that darkest moment when nobody else did and nobody else cared. And he came to me and he gave me life because Jesus goes everywhere. He goes everywhere. One of the greatest examples we see of his equal opportunity mindset, Jesus is, is found in the gospel of John chapter four. You guys all know this story. Right? So, so Jesus and his disciples are way low Israel at the time, which would be Judea, way south. And they needed to go back to Galilee, right? And there were no trains or planes or, right? They, they walked or they, they cameled it, whatever. The problem is between Judea and Galilee was this place called Samaria. And the way that everybody looked at the Samaritans and the people in this place was like we look at people who have a different worldview than us. They were the bad people. They were the problem with the world. They were infected. They were the issue. And so they did not go through Samaria. They hated them so much that a Jew would not travel through Samaria. So if they were in Judea, they would go over, across the border of Samaria, then up, then back to get where they were going. Jesus walks to the border with his disciples, and then he steps in. And his disciples are like, like, wait a minute, like, what are we doing? Don't you know where you're at? He's like, yeah, I know where we're at. Like, this is where I'm going. This is what we're doing. And he walks in, and he goes to a well. And he sends the dudes off to get, they were, you know, they were hungry, so he sends them to the store to get some food. And, and, and while they're gone, he has this divine appointment with this Samaritan woman, right, who, who, who's had five husbands and maybe going on her six. She's just... She's just rolling in the sheets with this sixth one, right? And, and Jesus, no pun intended, like pulls the covers on what's going on with, with this gal. It's like, what's up, right? She, she's, she's dirty, and she's sinful, and she's a Samaritan. And Jesus had to go to this well to meet with this lady. And the bottom line is this is the heart of Christ. This is what he does for you and I, and this is what he does for all who need him is he goes to where they're at regardless of what they look like or how messy they are. And the bottom line with that story is Jesus went to a place that he wasn't supposed to go to to meet a person that he wasn't supposed to meet to give her something she did not deserve. This is what we're seeing here. This is what we're talking about. This is what Jesus did over and over and over again, and this is what he shows us over and over and over again. Not only did Jesus go to all the cities and villages, but it also seems that he went to all the the demographics in those places, all the subcultures and all the layers of those cities and villages, because it says here that he taught in the synagogues and he healed every disease and affliction. 
right? So what that means is that he was active in the private sectors. He was active in the religious sectors, but he was also active in the public sector. He made himself accessible to everybody, everybody. That's what it means. He taught in the synagogues meant that he was spending time with the religious people reasoning and revealing himself in the scriptures and what was going on to them through the scriptures. It also says he was healing every disease and affliction, meaning that he was outside the walls of the synagogue in the streets. Both. Now, I want to keep this super short. I don't want to get bogged down on this, but just as a side note, um, and when speaking of Jesus healing every disease, um, because we've gotten this wrong for a long time, and it's nothing new, but it, it seems even more popular today. The, the primary purpose of the Christian and the church on earth is not to promote this message that every disease and affliction is going to be healed if you come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus and he's going to go ahead and take your woes away. Like, he's going to fix everything. Like, that's like the biggest, like, most false message in the church today. Does Jesus heal? Absolutely. When he wants to, where he wants to, who he wants to, however he wants to, he's still king of the kingdom. He owns everything, and he can do whatever he wants. But the Christian, Christianity, does not lead with the message. If you come to Jesus, he'll fix your life. It's just not true. Um, the reason I say that is because verses like this are used a lot of times as a proof to go like, see, here it is. He was doing it, so we must be doing it too. That must be what the church's primary purpose is. No, that's not what our, like the rest of scriptures tell us that. There, there's a very heavy uh, theology of suffering for the Christian if you read the rest of your scriptures, okay? Uh, Jesus did not uh, uh, do this as a wink and a nod to the word faith movement, like it's, 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 it's not a proof text for them. He didn't do it for uh, the, the Dominion Theology Movement, which is really big, or the NAR, uh, the New Apostolic Reformation, which is really big right now. Um, and again, this is the premise, this is the attraction of it. If you come to them, you're going to see some crazy rad stuff happening, and it's all going to go down in your favor. It's just, it's just, it's just a lie. It's just a lie. Okay? What G, the reason Jesus healed everybody Okay, and all, all, all diseases, like it didn't matter what you had, if you brought it to him and it was broken, he could fix it. <laughs> like he was taking care of all of it. The reason he did that is, is for an authoritative authentication of his message, of his words, of his life, of his testimony, of his gospel, of his divine origin as to being the king of God's kingdom and the only way to God. Like, so, so much of what we've seen over the last three chapters, four chapters in this book um, is the, the power and the authority that Jesus displayed over all things that exist, whether it's the demon-possessed or whether it's nature, whether it's a storm that's raging or whether it's people that have sickness and illness, all of it is to say, I am Lord. All of it. It's an authoritative statement. It's a statement of authentication of his authority. And his power. And because this is true, people knew some. The kingdom of God has come upon us through this man. Through this man. Because of his signs and his miracles and the impossibilities that he would do, it all equaled authentication. It all causes man to say, oh, this, this is real. Like, like, like this God man is real. This message that he's proclaiming is real. It's real. 
And why? Why why was the mission of Jesus so strong and so widespread and so non-discriminatory and so unstoppable? Because of what we read next in verse 36, which says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I don't want to like state the obvious because it might hurt a little bit. Uh, me first, for sure. But I'm going to state the obvious. The reason why you and I are so, the reason why you and I are so selective and so unfruitful and so quite frankly lazy about where we don't go with the gospel and who we don't invest the gospel in is directly due to our lack of compassion. Directly. The problem with our evangelistic weakness is not that that we're not versed enough in scriptures, like we may make a mistake or someone may hurl a question at us that we're unable to answer. That's, that's not our biggest evangelistic problem. Or that we don't have enough scientific knowledge to defend like creationism and destroy naturalism. Like Those aren't our problems. The problem is that you and I can look at certain people without our hearts breaking. That's the problem. In fact, not only do our hearts not break when we look at certain folks, it actually grows harder and colder, and more callous toward them because their sin disgusts us, so they disgust us. This is our fundamental evangelistic problem right here. The thinking disgusts us, so we withhold the gospel. Their political party disgusts us, so we withhold the gospel. The way they vote disgusts us, so we withhold the gospel. Their worldview disgusts us, so we withhold. Their lifestyle disgusts us, so we withhold. Their confidence in their worldview and actions and lifestyle disgusts us, so they disgust us. They disgust us. And because they disgust us, our conclusion is that they aren't worthy of redemption, God, His gospel, forgiveness, mercy, eternal life. So we respond with passivity. We just pass over them. We don't say anything. Again, all I have to say is, how blessed are we that God did not do this with us? Like, how blessed are you that God did not do this with you? I know that I do this with others, and I don't, it's one of those things I hate. But, but the, like, the, 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 the bigger thing here, the bigger question is, how can God love someone like me? If, if I'm being honest about what dwells in me, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I'm a pretty depressed person a lot of times, and I know that a Christian's not supposed to say that. We're just supposed to have the joy, 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 joy down in our hearts all the time, right? We're just shooting rainbows. And, um, and, and I, like, I, like I, I'm, I'm heavy a lot. Like, I, I'm, I'm depressed a lot. And you know why? Because when I look into the mirror deep enough, I see how deep sin runs in me. Now, my life's cleaner. If you, if you want to do a comparison uh, on a scale, like compared to what it was when God first saved me, I don't do the things I used to do. Like you could probably follow me around and set up some cameras and you're not going to see anything real crazy. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about this stuff. I'm talking about the stuff that God sees inside of me. My thoughts, my desires, my intentions, my motives. 
Like they're, like they're out of control so much. And, and like I see them more than I've ever seen them before. Like the reality of my state. And I don't know for the life of me why God could ever look at that and see that. And then have compassion on me. Like it makes no sense. And I, and I question it. I question it all the time because it, it seems like, like such an impossibility that he would love this. And yet he has. I've said it before. Like I, I, I've given him a million reasons not to love me. And he's not listening to them. Like, like what kind of a crazy love is this? It's the kind that Christ came with. It's the kind that we're seeing right here and we're talking about right here. It's real. This is what saved the world. Is this kind of compassion and love for people who do not deserve it. And I, and I don't get how you and I can be so, so cold, so hypocritical in enjoying this compassion that he showered upon us and then withhold it from everybody around us. Again, that's another depth of our depravity. <laughs> and it's an ugly hypocrisy for the Christian, right? Crazy stuff. I, I, lo- I love that Jesus didn't look at others the way that we look at others. Um, I love that he didn't respond to others the way that you and I um, respond to others. Um, Jesus looked out across the populace and he was not filled with disgust, but compassion. This is, this is actually, to me, the mountaintop of this whole text. Uh, usually we'll take the statement, the, uh, the analogy that he makes at the end, you know, the harvest. And, and that's all important and neat. But this is the key, actually. This is the peak. Is this one word in verse 36. And, um, and this, is, this is where, the, you know, the craziness of it all lies because Jesus looked out at the people and he doesn't just see what you and I see. Do you realize that? When you and I look and we, we, um, we, we, we pass a judgment or we do an evaluation on somebody that we see, we're just looking at what's coming out of them. Like Jesus actually saw more. Like Jesus had x-ray vision. Like Jesus is like looking out at what's coming out of them and looking in and seeing what's going on inside of them. And he still had compassion on us. That's just nuts. That's crazy to think about. He saw the deepest, darkest, most disgusting reality of each man. He saw the worst things imaginable when he looked at somebody, and yet he looked on them with compassion, not disgust. Now, I don't want to make us even more like uncomfortable this morning, but I, I believe that there can be several reasons why our lack of gospel compassion and our abundance of disgust when we look upon the sinner. Um, I, th- I think there's a couple reasons um, why this could exist. Number one is the obvious, like we may not be born again. Like, if we just have, like, no compassion for anybody, it's possible that, that the compassion giver and the source of compassion isn't dwelling in us. Uh, that's a scary thought. I know none of us want to think about that. It's a possibility, though. Like, if we, if we look at the lost, even the lost lost, which is not a real category, but I just want to say it because some people are like, oh, yeah, there's, like, sinners that are, you know, bad, and then there's those people that can't be saved. They're really bad. Like, your Bible doesn't do that. Like, there's, there's sheep and goats. That's it. Like, there's two, there's two categories. But, but like, um, if we look at, at, at the lost and we have no compassion but only disdain and distaste and disgust, it may very well be because we've never experienced this compassion of Jesus on and for ourselves. It's just a possibility. Maybe that we've never experienced it before. Uh, the idea of people being spiritually blind and needing sight may be lost on us if we've never experienced it for ourselves, right? Like if we think knowing Jesus is simply a moral issue, we may not know him. 
If we think that, that the whole thing's boiled down to an intellectual exercise of who's smarter and who's not in choosing Jesus or rejecting him, then we may not know him, because that's not it. If we know that we were blind, but now we see, then we're on to something. We're on to something. If we know that we have been born again, born from above supernaturally, born of the only begotten of the Father, and that that's the difference maker with us, then we will be able to conceive of and even possess a compassion for the lost. Not a perfect one for sure, but a present one. A present one. There will be a present inward truth and desire to love our enemies. Matthew 5, right? Because we owe all that we are to the beauty of God loving us first. The second reason that we may lack gospel compassion for the lost is because we're being more influenced by the world than we are by Jesus. Uh, This is my problem uh, daily. This is my fight every day. And it comes in different shapes, sizes, different inlets and avenues into my life, into my head, into my heart. But it's always happening. It's always happening. We may be uh, uh, influenced more by the world than by Jesus. There was this one of the first like sections of scripture that I ever memorized um, when I was a new Christian. I don't have it memorized anymore, so I'm going to read it just so you know. Um, And it's Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, which says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Um, You guys should highlight that, underline that, stick that on your fridge or your forehead, whatever. Um, the King James version of it's rad because instead of starting off with see to it, it starts off with the word beware. And uh, every time I read that word, I see a fence with something bad on the other side. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that's what you should see when you look at this text and what Paul is saying here in Colossians 2, 8. Basically what it means is beware lest you become influenced by outside sources and worldly thinking. That's all it's saying outside sources and worldly thinking, rather than according to Christ's truth and thinking. Um, My dad had this stupid, stupid, I've shared this before, I think, sign in his office when I was a young punk kid um, doing stupid things. Um, And I would like come into his office, which was by the back door, uh, when I would go to leave on a Friday night, I'd I'd be out to party all night and do my thing. And I'd be like, all right, see you, dad, leaving. And he would turn and he would point at this this dumb sign on his wall. Like he wouldn't even say anything sometimes. He'd just point at it and says, show me who you hang with, I'll show you who you are. That's all the sign said. Show me who you hang with, I'll show you who you are. Like that was his way of saying like, bye, love you. Like don't be an idiot, <laughs> even though you're gonna be an idiot right now, right? And, um, and, and that's, that's really what we're talking about. Like we're all, we are all influenced and will be influenced by that which we spend most of our time around. It's just the way it works. I wish it didn't. I've tried to master it not working, uh, and I've, I've never got the upper hand. It's simply the way that it works. It doesn't matter if it's people or media or music or podcasts or books or articles or personalities, news sources, people. Just turn it off. Just turn it off. You know, like, like you, can, you can know all you need to know as far as what's going on in the world and what you need to know, like in, in moments, during the day, 
turn that garbage off. You may say, well, I listen to a good news source. They're very moral. They're, they're, they're pro-life and they're, you know, they hate gay marriage and they're very concerned. I don't care. The spirit in which they deliver what they deliver to you is of Satan. It's causing division and hate in places where Jesus would say, stop it. It's nonsense. It's the way that it's done. It's not just what's being said. Know that. It's all preaching a sermon. All of it is. They all preach something. There is a worldview sermon to be heard at some level in all of it. And if we are not careful, if we are not conscious and awake when we soak this stuff in, we will buy them. And, and again, not the big obvious ones, but the subtle ones. Like, I'm pretty sure right now that I will, I will never, ever agree with same-sex marriage. I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I'm safe there. Like, I have a strong conviction on that, right? But, 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 but what about when someone close to me hurts me for the fourth or fifth or sixth time, and the outside sources say, you deserve to be happy. You need to live them, leave them. You need to give them what they deserve. You know what I'm saying? You know what we deserve? Like an eternity of hell. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's right. Um, but these, su- these subtle things that come in, they feed the flesh. And a lot of times, you and I just aren't, we're just not discerning enough to know why we're liking the message that's coming in. We just know that we like it. So we just can assume, oh, this must be from God. And, and a lot of it can't be farther from the truth, straight from the other guy. Like, like, be careful of what you're spending all your time around because you will start to think that way, right? It's easy for us to get off track and buy the bull when we make buddies with the bad guy. It's a stupid sounding line. I don't know why I wrote that. Therefore, our primary, our primary mind diet, <laughs> that's kind of funny, um, <laughs> must consist of that which speaks truth and godliness into our lives, right? Um, so, so, like, Let's just, know, let's, just, let's just all get this out there, okay, and agree on this. Like, like don't be disturbed uh, by the world. The world is only doing what the world does. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's thinking the way it's supposed to think. It's saying the stuff it's supposed to be saying. It's acting the way it's supposed to be acting. It's no surprise that the world is doing what the world does. We can't change that. What's disturbing is when the church ceases to do what the church should be doing thinking the way we should be thinking, loving the way we should be loving, living the way we should be living. That's where the breakdown really is. If we're not careful to stay on top of this, the church doing what the church is supposed to do, which is what we're seeing here, Jesus is teaching it to us right now, then disgust, not compassion, will be our disposition. And that disposition is not reflective of Jesus' disposition. You, got, you guys are with me? I know that was kind of a long segment. Okay, good. Um, we're not just told that Jesus had compassion on them, but we're also told why. And that being because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless by who? By who? Like, who's being talked about here? Like, was it Rome? Was it the Jewish leaders? Was it the Jewish religious leaders? Was it Satan? Was it themselves? Was it sin? I'm just going to say, yeah. Like, Yeah. All of the above, all of the above, right? All could be true, but, but whatever it means exactly, what is for certain is these guys had a lack. They had a lack, a lack in their own ability to lead themselves, whether it be physically or whether it be spiritually. He refers to them as sheep. 
If you don't know, these creatures cannot lead themselves. They will not live. They will die. Sheep must have a shepherd or they're in trouble. They will not last. Whether a wolf gets them or they walk off a cliff or they fall over and can't get back up because there's so much poo in their wool. Seriously. I have a buddy who, who did this in Wales. And this is what the, one of his jobs was to drive the grid of pasture every morning to pick up the sheep that had fallen over. Why did they fall over? Because they get so much poo in their wool that they fall over and they cannot get up. And you know, I know it's funny. You can laugh. It's kind of cute. But the, but the bottom line is like once they do, if that, per, if that shepherd is not there to come and pick them up, they're done right where they lay. Jesus is referring to us the same way. And it is true. Spiritually, it is true. You and I need a shepherd. We don't need to be led. We need to be led right. The whole problem with the world, just like it was then, it's the same today. People are led wrong. They're misled, just like they were then. We need to introduce them to the shepherd. That's what we're here for. They were not being led well. That's all that's basically being said there. 37, 38, let's close this thing out. I know that this is where the Sunday school teachers are like, who's, who's teaching today? Oh, it's David. Yeah. 37, 38, we'll take them together. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A couple things I just want us to overview this, survey this, that I want us to notice here. Number one, we're not waiting. We're not waiting, if you notice, for harvest time to come around. The harvest Jesus is talking about already exists. It already exists. It's already here. With most harvesters, like this little window, right? Like this, this short, definite period uh, of time that you have to work for and prep for and wait for and hope to arrive so that you can like re reap an increase once it comes. Not this one. This one that Jesus is talking about is already here. It's an already harvest. It's a year-round harvest. It's a multi-season har harvest. Let, think, think of some of the words that you hear from Jesus sometimes like this in, Matthew, or, or in John chapter 6. Um, all who the Father gives me will come to me. What does that mean? All who the Father gives me, well, what's he saying? He's, he's acting as if something is certain that is yet to even happen fully. That's because it is. It's an emphatic statement. It is certain. It is certain that those who God considers his fruit will come to him. They will be reaped. They will be picked. All that the Father, it doesn't say all that the Father give me uh, will come to me if they're smart enough or if they decide to or if they give their heart to Jesus or, or if your arguments as an evangelist are good enough. Like, like, like if you can sway them and, and woo them. If you do a good enough job, then they'll No, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's an already harvest that you and I are just still in the middle of and already harvest. They're coming, right? Jesus is saying here, the harvest is here all the time, every day, right now, ready to go. Like all the heavy lifting's been done. This is one of the raddest parts, guys. Like I, I, if you're like me, you're scared when it comes to evangelistic endeavors. <laughs> like there, there's something to be scared about that. I mean, it, it takes some, you got to be brave and confident and bold. And I'm none of those things. 
when, when I get in, in front of somebody. Um, and and it, it, is, it, it is a challenge, but what's rad to know is that all the heavy lifting with the reaping has been done. Like it's not dependent on you, and it's not dependent on me, right? Um, because, because the harvest is already here, like it's already set, it's already going to go down, um, the laborers are not needed to prep the field, um, they're, they're needed to reap the field because it's already good. The harvest is already good. So laborers are, 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 aren't in prep mode uh, here, they're in pick mode. Number two, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to go out and grab their buddies, right? He's not like, go out and grab all your buddies, grab as many people as you can. Grab your family members, grab the ones who communicate well. Like, he, he doesn't do that, right? He tells them to ask the master of the field to hire more workers. That's kind of weird, right? He's not like, go get busy, guys, and grab who you can. He's like, no, you guys need to, like, go up the chain. Like, you need, you need to go up the chain, right? Uh, like, like, don't try to do this your own way. It, it needs to be approved and done his way. I've owned a business for 25 years by the grace of God, uh, the, the, uh, a chimney business, um, and now I, I, I'm not in the field. Uh, I have three, three of my boys uh, run it now. They're in the field. Um, I don't want any of them making some kind of a big decision and then implementing it uh, without them coming to me. Um, I'm serious, and some of that's gone down, and uh, I like their ideas uh, of changes that need to be made need to go by me first, uh, because I'm, I'm the CEO of this business, even though I'm not, in, I know that field better than they do, right? I, I know the field better than they do, um, and so they need to come to me with that stuff. How much more does God know this field better than we do, right? Like, not only, not only does he own the field, like, he created it. <laughs> and he like filled it. He like, he like made everything that's in it. It's all his, right? So it, it's right that you and I go to him as far as matters and affairs going on in the field. It's kind of an odd thing, but kind of makes sense too. Like he, he knows, he knows what, he's, what he's doing. Um, if you notice here, Jesus chooses to place another word in here when uh, he says to ask the Lord of the harvest for more workers. That word is earnestly like in the ESV, um, like he doesn't say pray. He says pray earnestly, which means sincerely, like with intense conviction, like, like seriously. In, in other words, you and I need to really care about this. You and I should really care about this. I don't know how many times it slips my brain when I'm agonizing over somebody I love who's lost, you know, to just go to the Father with all of my heart and with all of my, like, as serious as it is to me, and go, God sent somebody to that person. I mean, this is, this is really what we're talking about today. This is a great text for a new year, by the way, for a church. It really is. This is, this is a perfect deal. Um, and and what's, what, what's so cool about this is it means that we get to bug the boss. Like, it's, it's okay to bug the boss. That's what Jesus is saying. It's okay to bug the boss. Like, like believing it, wanting it, desiring it, it's okay for us to bother him. Like, we have permission to pester our dad and the owner of the field over something like this. And we should be. We should be taking him up on it. We should be pestering God every day, earnestly, that he would send more workers out for the harvest that already exists. So if I'm to summarize, like, the, basically this analogy at the end that Jesus uses here, it would be like this, okay? God has a family business. 
God has a family business. That family business is to grow God's family. It's the reaping of souls, right? Business is good. We all might sit around and be like, what are you talking about? Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're getting crushed. Like, you know, wide is destruction, you know, narrow is, no, no. Business is good. The harvest is set, it's gonna, and, and it's been a good one, and it's going to be a good one. It's going to be exactly what the owner of the field wants it to be. It's good, right? Um, it's so good that more laborers are needed, okay? And because God is the boss, he's the CEO of the family business, he makes the business decisions. Everything is run through him and by him. So if there is a request or a recommendation or a suggestion, it needs to go to the man at the top of the ladder because it is that man who has the power and the authority to make it come about. This is a summary of this. Now, this is not just a summary of Jesus' analogy here. This is a summary of why the church exists on earth. It's not to just go to church and sing songs to Jesus and sit through long, boring sermons. Like, like I've said this before, think about it. All the things that we do together as a church is going to go into eternity. It's all going to be done so much better than, than how we do it now. We're going to continue to get to do these things that we enjoy, whether it's singing, whether it's just like, like marinating in, in the truth of God's word, like the, the fellowship that we have, uh, the assembly together um, before him, like this is all gonna be done throughout eternity so much better. What you will never, ever, ever do again is preach the gospel to someone who desperately needs it. You will never get to reap again. This is it. This is why the church exists on earth. We do all these other things, not primarily. We do them to strengthen the body of Christ, to go out and do those things, to do that thing. That's the success, like, like that's how it fits. Okay? That's how it works. Um, I, got, I got to end with this real quick, and, I, and it's going to be quick. Uh, some of you have willingly, um, maybe even happily, believed the lie that because God hasn't given you the gift of evangelism, you're exempt from evangelism. Anybody? Okay, well, I have, all right? <laughs> I'll be the only cool, humble one here, all right? Um, I, I have believed that. Like, like, if he wanted to make, like, if he wanted me to evangelize, like, he'd put this calling on my life, and I clearly don't have this calling. Um, you know, this guy clearly has this calling, um, and I've, I used that for years as an excuse to not walk in that which God has put me here for. Um, it's crazy, um, and it's wrong thinking. It's wrong thinking. Th think about it like this. Um, like, I can promise you that Michael Jordan would have won zero games and zero championships if those other four dudes weren't on the court with him. Like, I can guarantee it. I can promise you. Like, the dude was rad. Like, he was, he was, he was super, like, apt. He was more natural and gifted of, of a player in his abilities and his skill than anybody else. But I, but I can guarantee that, like, no other player on that team, like, said to themselves, like, since Michael's so good, like, I'm not going to play basketball tonight. Like, I'm just going to sit on the bench and watch him go off. You know what I mean? Like, like none of them, like, did that, you know? Like, like, they played basketball, too. And they were necessary for every victory and every championship that the Chicago Bulls ever won. Necessary. It is the same thing with the gifts and the callings and the church moving the same direction for the same purpose, to glorify the name of Christ throughout the nations. 
This is why we are here. What are the gifts for? Well, you've got people that are more gifted. I had a buddy named Doug. A lot of you knew Doug. It's like a spiritual father to me. He's a guy that brought me up in the, in the faith and taught me so much. But one of the things I, I, I learned the most from him is this is, Doug is the most purest evangelist I've ever met in my life. Like he was like a magnet when we would go anywhere in public. Like just the most unlikely people, the unlikely times, the unlikely situations. He'd be having a conversation and then praying with someone who's accepting Christ. Every time I'd look over, it felt like. Like it was absolutely nuts. And so I knew I didn't have what he had. Like it was so different the, the way he was naturally able to walk in it. But I wanted to do better at that. And I was able to watch him by being around him to learn how to be better. It's, this is why we're around. This is why we all have different gifts so that we can be blessed by each other's gifts, but so that we can all see, like, learn how to be more filled out in, in the things that matter, in the things of the Spirit and the fruits of God in our lives so we can watch each other. Pastoring's the same way. There's only a few people who are called to be pastors with the gift and the calling. But the bottom line is, you guys all know, you guys are all called to shepherd each other. You guys are all here to shepherd each other on some level to pastor each other on some level. It's the same thing with evangelism. So to close it up, evangelism is a team game, and it's also the family business. And if you're part of the family, then you are part of the family business, bottom line. But remember this as you go. Be encouraged with this as you go into the harvest. God himself, God himself is the great harvester. He's the owner of the field and the owner of all that goes on in the field. He knows what he's doing, listen to this, even when you don't. I don't. Like, I need to know that. God knows what he's doing in harvesting, even when you don't. Even when you are, uh, like, inadequate and incapable and underdeveloped and under-equipped. You are. You are. But he's not. This is the rad part. He's not. And the knowledge of this gives us courage and boldness and incentive to move ahead. So like beginning of the new year, whole thing, I would encourage you in this. Like instead of like adding some like resolution thing that you're going to break in a week or two, like I do, um, and feeling like a failure, like add this. Add this prayer that Jesus encourages you to pray to the top of your prayer list. Pray it with seriousness every day that God would send more workers. Let's do that together. I can do that. Can you do that? Let's do that together. I want to see this community transformed. I want to see the harvest. I want front row seats to the harvest. You know what I mean? I want to be there seeing um, what God is doing in the lives of people around us. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you for giving us what we need um, to do these things that are beyond us. I thank you, Lord, that um, this is not something that depends on me. I, I thank you that it does not depend on me for anybody to be saved. That's a horrible, horrible thought. I, I, I praise you, Lord, that you've, you've already uh, determined a good harvest and that we just get to kind of like be a part of it, that we, that we get front row seats to it, Lord. And so we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your certainty. And most of all, we thank you um, for the compassion that you have had on each and every one of us sitting here today, even though we don't deserve it. I pray that, that um, you would grow us in that kind of compassion towards those around us. And I ask it in your son's name. Amen.